Nick, I feel like we're struggling to stand out on social media. I don't know. I mean, I feel like we don't have really any big design savvy. Yeah, and, and like we just started this thing about a year ago, and it's just we don't have a budget to hire a designer or anyone like a marketing guru or anything like that. I mean, how do we attract new listeners? I feel like we should try this thing called Ripple. What's Ripple? I've never heard of it. Ripple is designed for small businesses, helps you attract new business and engage with existing customers. We don't have to be great designers. We create professional ads. There's like 200 plus design templates. It automatically shares to all of our social media. You mean like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram? All of it at once. It has recommendations and goal tracking tools. So like, you know, it's not going to make us hit 100,000 people next week. That's amazing. How do we sign up? For a seven-day free trial, visit rippleripl.com slash herd today. That's seven days free. Slash today, right? No. <laughs> All right. It's underlined. Today is underlined. No. No, that's wrong. For your seven-day free trial of Ripple, visit ripple.com, R-I-P-L.com slash herd h-e-a-r-d right now coming to you from podcast detroit it's herd your food beverage and hospitality podcast herd is a collaboration between the hungry dudes nick drinks and the detroit optimist society each week we interview industry professionals about issues related to food beverage and hospitality please take a moment to subscribe to herd through the apple podcast app Google Play, SoundCloud, or however you subscribe to your podcast. Write a review and let us know what you think. For additional content, including awesome videos and photos, visit HerdPodcast.com, like HerdPodcast on Facebook, and follow at HerdPodcast on Instagram. We appreciate your support and hope you enjoy this week's episode of Herd. Hello, friends, and welcome to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. I'm Joe Hakeem, and tonight I'm joined by Nick. Hello. Jason. Good evening. And our very special guest, co-founder, editor, contributor, photographer, uh, social media person, every every <laughs> the Renaissance woman of Tostada Magazine, and recent recipient of a $20,000 grant from the Detroit Journalism Engagement Fund. Woo! Serena Daniels. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being with us, Serena. How are you? I'm happy to be here. Awesome. So let's start with uh, some booze talk. Um, Nick, you brought a bunch of mezcal with you. Yes. Three bottles. I feel like I've been trumped, though, by the delicious rum that we're drinking from Jason. Well, it's not being trumped. It's, you know, it's in unison. It's Clint. What else do you say? (laughs) It's a collaborative effort. (laughs) Collaborative effort. Yeah. Okay. So you want to talk about the rum first? Because this rum, this bottle is interesting. Well, it's from Smooth Ambler, which is kind of nuts. They're whiskey guys. Yeah. WTF. Well, you know, it's, uh, they definitely are. We had the pleasure of going to West Virginia, visiting the distillery, picking out a single barrel from them. Uh, but this is uh, sort of a one-off project that they did. Like we've mentioned before, the brand is uh, uh, the old Scout brand uh, that they built for their whiskey expressions. It was kind of uh, based off this idea that they were out there picking really great barrels of uh, whiskey, not necessarily distilling their own, but just scouting out some of the best barrels. So in the process of uh, of their spirit search, they uh, stumbled upon this Jamaican rum. Um, it's at least 24 years old. Um, that's it. That's the story. So 
They've scouted out this uh, rum, uh, 99 proof. It's one of their trademarks. Um, yeah, it's funky. It's nice good. Funky Jamaican rum. Did we talk about the age? I was pouring mezcal, so I wasn't listening. The mm-hmm. youngest rum in the bottle mm-hmm. put down a barrel in 1990. This bottle's a couple years old, so. Nice. Sadly, I shouldn't have admitted that on the air, but. Why? Because you should go through your bottles a little faster. Oh, stop it. I'm just saying. <laughs> I've accumulated more. Join the club. So Join I'm trying to whittle it down a little yeah. bit. Yeah, I'm trying to be more uh, active in my drinking as well. Well, it's funny because my, my shelf as well. That whole like um, selling your beer debacle. I've been trying to like drink my beers. I'm not as crazy with the booze, but the beers, I definitely feel like a little more urge to like get them out. Hmm. I, I, fi- I find recently that I don't have, I don't enjoy beer as much as I enjoy yes. pouring a, pouring a little dram of uh, mm. scotch or some bourbon or something. It's just not the same anymore. Hmm. I will take at least partial. However, <laughs> and, and I'm not and I'm podcast. Just, yeah, and it's uh, like the other night at uh, Otis Supply, I had uh, CBS, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I think we've talked about CBS a couple times. It's the all, Canadian all Breakfast Out from Founders. It's barely highly bourbon-y. sought after. Yeah. Um, I did do the uh, the Bourbon County flight at Honest John's yesterday. Oh yeah, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. Yeah, and how was that? I mean, as you know, it's been well documented. Uh, how I feel about beer. I mean, I couldn't tell the difference, but I don't drink beer that often, and it's very heavy and very, uh, you know. How were they okay. aged? Were these things that you guys had, like, hanging out in Honest John's, like, in the basement? They were in the basement, yeah. Damn. They're in kegs, yep. Nice. Yeah. The distributor actually get, uh, gave us one of the 16s, I believe, but, yeah, we have had them in the basement in Honest 16. John's. I know. Aww. 16 had a rough year. Not for the kegs, I don't think. No, no, okay. at all. So we should have, we, yeah, we're good there. <laughs> Talked um, about that. Today. But I do have lots of bottles if I, I want I, some 16. I think it was, though, like I let a couple guys next to me try it. I think the 15 was like, it wasn't, um, you know. That was the old bottle. Night and day, but yeah. like it was noticeably a little bit more refined. So right. I guess I like that with the 15 the best. I don't know if it's because it's the aging. I just happen to like that one the best. We got super beer nerdy really fast <laughs> out of the gate. <laughs> All right, something so, has been unlocked. Yeah, <laughs> Let, let's go to this mez. Let's talk about this mezcal. So I've been on this crazy mezcal kick. Um, I don't know really when it started. It started before Tales of the Cocktail, so it must have started kind of early last year. And we have a handful of them in Michigan. I think we got like twenty, um, and there are you know a bazillion out there because um, mezcal is any agave spirit. So whereas TK, no, whereas tequila is only uh, Weber Blue agave. Uh, mezcal is any agave so it ranges all over the place um i think actually probably what got me into it was two james so we have the two james bottle right here they did a mezcal uh, obviously it's not made in uh the u.s because uh, i believe to call it a mezcal it has to be in mexico is that yeah, correct it is a I know tequila nomination of origin is it okay uh, spirit or whatever they call it um but yeah so they came out with this like smooth Ambers. a couple years they ago to go source it out yeah they source it out absolutely yeah. um same thing they did for their rum for two james rum so uh, these are a couple that are in Michigan. I figured we'd try them. We actually have uh, official uh, votives to drink these out of um, because that's kind of what I've heard is the, uh, the proper way to do it. Uh, a lot of the Mexican population is very Catholic and Christian. So um, therefore, they drink out of uh, candle holders. So Interesting. Yeah. So this first one? Miria. This is uh, Oaxacan uh, 100% Puro de Agave. Um, and all of these are silver. Uh, it's not very traditional to age mezcals from what I understand. They are, they do exist. 
but for the most part, they're all uh, the the Hoven. I almost get some like peppers on that one. Yeah, it's smooth. It's uh, got a bit of heat to it. And all of them are fairly high proof too. This what are the uh, so these are votives? What are the little clay drinking vessels that mezcals also Copa. sometimes drink? Okay, um, and you also uh, can get a side of the ground up warm meal mixed mm. with spices and things. Uh, when Two James launched, they actually had that as a side mm. along with oranges too. We did a um, a tasting with I believe Oaxaca mezcal at the um, yep. and they had the uh, crickets. I yes, believe. yeah. And when we were at the Chicago Independent Spirits Festival. The guy, the guys at the end that I can't remember their name. Always a terrible shout out. They had a whole bunch of different little. Um, Those the, was at the beginning. The coyote, coyote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Coy- uh, was no. it? Yeah, coyote. Yeah. I know something I, like that. I, yeah, I yeah. seem to remember a, a, a coyote in the, the in the e. Maybe I don't know. No, no, I'm saying. Uh, no, that sounds on right. The label. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that was good because they had uh, they had a couple different flavors and uh, a couple different kind of spices to mix with it. It was good. So go mezcal. Cool. Well, thanks the for celebration. Yeah. What do you think, Serena? I don't know. I haven't tried it yet. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> you guys haven't offered. Oh, that is like? absurd. Ta-da. Or all of them. We we can start with uh, Mia too. Yeah. Start starter with the starter the way we we are going. Um. So interesting. This week, uh, in the UK, the uh, KFC. Released a um, uh, three different cocktails, all made with the KFC, KFC being Kentucky Fried Chicken. Kentucky Fried Chicken. Well, yeah. officially, their restaurant's or, called KFC. They dropped the Kentucky Fried Chicken. Really? Yeah, they're a client of mine. Because it's not really chickens, right? <laughs> I, I did not say that. <laughs> it's um, not Kentucky. It's probably... <laughs> um, but yeah, so they they made three recipes that each have gravy in them. Uh, they're that's not it's not a U.S. thing yet. Uh, or if it, I'm not even sure, it's coming. Three recipes for cocktails. Oh, okay. With gravy. Why? It's great marketing, yeah, obviously, because exactly. we're talking about it right, right now. Right, right. We are talking about it. Um, so we're actually going to test them on Friday at um, uh, Red Dunn Kitchen. So I With shot Dustin. you. Yeah. If you want to, if anyone wants to come, not out in podcast land, but if anyone in this room wants to come, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they will. I mean, there's going to be lines out the door. Yeah, for gravy cocktails. Mm-hmm. Can you give an example of one of the recipes? I got to look it up. It's like. I mean, they weren't like over the top crazy creative. Um, it, it sounds gross. KFC cocktail. Maybe I'm wrong. No, it definitely <laughs> sounds gross. I will take your guys' word for it. Um, the Gravy Mary. Five milliliters of vodka, 20 milliliters of KFC gravy, a spice mix, uh, 20 milliliters. Oh, this is a spice mix, I think. 20 milliliters of War- Worcester. Worcestershire. That's not spelled right. Worcestershire. Worcester. Worcester. W is it Worcester sauce? Uh, Worcestershire. Wor- Worcester. Yeah, Worcester. That's is a, that different? So that's not. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's a flavor of potato chip that we sell at Akron. Oh, okay. Yeah. Three drops of Tabasco, <laughs> three grinds of white pepper, a pinch of salt, etc. So it's like it's boozy gravy. That's all that is. <laughs> so yeah. you put it over mashed potatoes, or do you drink it? Uh, I mean, if you're a Real Housewives of uh, Detroit County, you could put it over your uh, mashed potatoes. I'm sure. <laughs> I feel like they're all alcoholics. I don't know. <laughs> is is that really a thing? Do people really put booze in their gravy? No, no one does that. I don't know. No, not yet. I've made gravy. KFC like is investing in, in making sure that you do in the future. <laughs> they're working on liquor license. Yeah. yeah. Uh, speaking of which, Taco Bell 
You, lo- you have the cantina right. that launches without the liquor license. Oh, that seems odd. Yeah, bummer. The, the one over here in Royal Oak? Yeah. So they're open, but with no booze. Yeah. That, and that defeats the purpose of the cantina. Right. I mean, granted, the cantina is like plus up food. So I haven't tried the food. I will. It's what? It, the food's better. It's like actually, oh, it it's like, yeah, they actually did a better job. It's more shareable. They're like kind of. You went to the one in Cleveland. So you have like. So I went to the opening. Experience. Yeah. I went to the opening there and they had alcohol. They actually had the bottom pour beer cups, which are kind of cool. Like oh, the yeah. ones with the magnetic things. Um, but I mean, I just, it does feel like it's kind of defeating the point that why would you, when you waited, unless it's going to take forever for it to launch. Well, the canteen at my only experience, when we had the uh, Violet Hour takeover in Chicago that we went to, the cantina in Chicago, you know, open till 4 a.m., but Whoa. stopped serving. Yeah, but they stopped serving at like 10 p.m. Uh, alcohol. So, oh, sure. you know, a bunch of people went there after the uh, takeover thinking that they're going to get Taco Bell and booze. Because it was like marketed as such, you know, and no, no go, no booze at the Taco Bell late night. I feel like it was a huge missed opportunity. Thoughts on the Taco Bell cantina? I feel like there are many cases where a place opens up and they don't have their liquor license yet. 100%. Right. Um, And it's like you either just open and deal with it at Mm -hmm. the time or you just never open. So maybe that's. Was the situation? I, don't I know. mean, they could have people. I mean, because when you're not open, you're not making payroll. So maybe they had right. staff that they already hired. They want them to give them some sort of money, right? I just feel, and like, they're probably fingers crossed that they're gonna sure get their act together in a few weeks or something. And I don't, yeah, I don't know how Royal Oak is if they're super limited on licenses. My guess is probably like a lot of cities. So, so Serena, so we, Nick mentioned money. Let's talk about this grant that you uh, that you won. Tostada Magazine. First of all, tell rough, us about that's a rough segue. I, it, it is, but, but <laughs> really rough. But, I mean, we went from gravy to Taco Bell to. I mean, we have a guest here. God damn it! So, you know, I'm trying. I'm trying. So, I, I used money as a yeah, whatever. It, it, we're, we're here. Let's talk about it, right? So, tell us about Tostada Magazine. Could have been the Cantina to Tostado, Taco Bell to Tostada. Yeah, I mean, could have been. I mean, there yeah. are definitely Tostadas Jason, at Taco Bell. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I launched it actually last week. Or last year, rather. Um, it was really, it really was on a whim, to be honest with you. It was something I wanted to do just to have a home for some of my content. Um, I'm a freelancer, and so I'm always pitching to a, you know, different media outlets. But there are definitely occasions where I don't have like a lot of work to do. So I wanted to create an outlet that like, gave me like a home, you know, gave gave my stories a home to live. And so that's how it started, but you know, I've I've been pretty active as a freelancer and as a food writer for the past few years. And so, you know, unexpectedly it really resonated with people and we started getting a lot of followers or, you know, at least a decent amount of followers for the time being. Um and um and so it, it just kind of grew from there. Um Last year, like late last year, um, a friend of mine told me about a grant that was available. It's a brand new funding, um, just launched last year. It was announced, I think, like in April or May, um, but I had no idea about it. I, I learned about it like a week before the deadline. Wow. Yeah. So there were a lot of details I had to put together. Um, I had taken a business boot camp through the Build Institute, actually. So coincidentally, I had already been working on a business plan, and that really helped to like spell out the details of our mission and what we're about. 
Um, and, and then I heard about this opportunity. So, you know, I got my shit together and applied and things just kind of fell into place. So with, with this, uh, with this grant, the, um, the, uh, Thanks, fund you want it through who, who's, who backs that? Um, that's the, uh, Detroit Journalism Engagement Fund, and that's funded by the Knight Foundation, the Ford Foundation, and the Community Foundation of Southeast Michigan. And so really the goal is to fund projects that are focused on engaging the community um, in Detroit. Um, You know, obviously we have so many legacy media outlets, TV, uh, radio, you know, free press, the news. Um, but just the state of media as it is, it's getting more and more difficult to really interact and really engage with people in the neighborhoods, with people who, you know, with diverse populations. And so I think this was at least in some part um, created to address some of that. Now, do you think that's because a lot of Food writing, uh, at least the way I, I've seen it um, go in the past few years, has been focused more or less on new openings and chasing like whatever's Shiny, hot, awesome, giant, big. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, D- Metro Detroit is so diverse. There are so many. You know, you can go to Dearborn and find all of these wonderful, you know, Lebanese and Arab American restaurants that really. I mean, if we're being honest, put Metro Detroit on the map in terms of food. Um, Traditionally, like for years and years, you know, at least since I moved here six, seven years ago, Dearborn has always been like one of those destinations. And yet when you look at how it's covered in the media, it's like, you know, every now and then um, almost as if it's like, you know, I don't know, you're compiling a list of of places and you have like your, your, um, you know, just like places that you're like stereotypically supposed to have on like, on your roundup of, of stories. Like it's obligatory, like Elamir is always going to show up. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. If you touch Dearborn, Elamir is mentioned. Right. And that's like, that's about it. Um, but what was like interesting when like, when like Junior's place opened, um, I'm blanking on the name right now. Yes. M Cantina. Yeah. That I remember I, I was out there day one. It was uh-huh. dead. And I reached out to a bunch of newer news organizations. I'm like, hey, here's this cool guy from New York. Set up this place. Come check it out. Now, it took probably six months for him to get on the radar. Right, right. And so that's that's some of the stuff that we'd like to get into. Mm-hmm. Um, and treating a place like M Cantina or, um, you know, you name it. You, you know, some of these new places that are popping up but Night might not be on like the radar of the free press or what have you. Um, and or, you know, there are tons of, you know, hidden gems that people love, like people love seeing their favorite hidden gem, you know, featured in a story. Um, it makes them feel connected. It makes them feel like they are being listened to in the media. It it just kind of gives them recognition and shine that they, you know, that they're looking for. Uh, well, so they yeah, feel like they're in the uh-huh. in then, like they're part of it. They're you know right. they knew about it before everyone else. Sure, so. sure. And I think more than anything, um, 
I feel like a lot of times what happens in media is that there's this otherness that's created when you're talking about um, a certain ethnic cuisine um, or tradition or a certain community. And the reality is it's not an other kind of conversation. I mean, you know, if you're Mexican-American like myself or you're Arab-American American, or you're African-American, you're just as much a part of the community as any, you know, trendy new restaurant um, or bar, what have you. So, you know, how do we talk about these places in a way that's not like treating it like this foreign or exotic kind of place, but part of the mainstream? Mm-hmm. And how do you do that? I mean, because I feel like a lot of dining out, especially with the way it's written in some in some ways, is like, Oh, there's this you know new Peruvian place down the street, or this there's this new uh, uh, Persian place, or it, it's always got that qualifier of like what kind of place it is, right? Sure. Even before the food is even spoken about. So well, if, and I feel like food is special because if you open like a British place, I feel like you'd still hey, it's British food. Hey, it's Norwegian food. I feel like food is interesting because you typically do have that country modifier in front of it. Yeah, and I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm okay. just saying, like, what comes, but what comes with that is baggage attached to whatever mm. qualifier. Every is put other in front Asian of restaurant ever opened, or, or not, not even that. It's like the otherness that you're talking about. It's like, oh well, I know nothing. You know, Peruvian Peru scares me, or you know, it's a terrible example. Who's scared by <laughs> it's Peru? Probably but, true, though. But you I mean, know, yeah. but but it's like, yeah. but so, and then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, but maybe if I, you know, can try Peruvian food, like I'll have a huge understanding. Food, food to me should be a, 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 the, like the the foot in the door. Yeah, right, right. And I feel like I feel like it's it's not that way for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It's like you know, oh well. It, and also, it, it's it's a it's a point of like you can use it as a point of like uh, if you want to take like a uh, what's the word? Um, uh, if you want to look at it from like a you could I can't, I can't think of the word. I'm trying to think of the damn it. You know, I don't know. I I think I would beg to differ. So my career, most of my career, I spent covering hard news. And actually a good chunk of my career, I spent covering immigration, which is, you know, anytime you throw immigration into a headline, it's bound to create controversy, just the politics of it. Um, One way that you can talk about immigration or identity or culture in a way that's palatable to people is through food. Mm. Everyone eats. Everyone has memories of grandma's cooking or of, you know, that special tradition that you do in your household. I don't care what your background is. You, those, those are things that you hold on to that you value. And so really it's a matter of kind of speaking that universal language. I, you know, you might not be uh, Yemeni, but you understand um, the you know family traditions. You understand um, you know the the care that goes into making a, a an heirloom recipe, um, and so, th- so that that sort of thing people connect with and that resonates with you, whether you're of that background or not. So I think that's one way to overcome it. Um, I think another way to kind of get past that otherness is to treat to treat these stories like 
you would treat any other story. You give you you know, in my case, I use my journalism background um, to do the reporting with the same level of seriousness um, that I would any other story. So um, I think that I think that reflects in in the stories that we've done so far. Um, we did this great piece on uh, Lena Serini, um, who works at uh, Selden Standard. She's a pastry chef. She's super talented. She's been recognized as one of the top pastry chefs in the country mm-hmm. by Eater. Um, and she, you know, and she's Muslim American. She has to work in the kitchen during Ramadan. And so we got to talk to her about that. And I think that that resonated for one. You know, she is she is known in her own right for what she does, her for her talent. Um but I think no matter what religion you are, what what your background is, there are rituals that you're by. If you're Catholic, you know, you go through Lent. And, you know, I think you ask any Catholic, you know, what they're going to give up next month. They have like a whole list of, you know, I'm not going to eat chocolate for a month or I'm not going to eat meat or blah, blah, blah. Um, I think I think those kind of rituals are are more less universal so do do you find that there some i find in some some of these uh pieces that are written that that these kind of ethnic quote unquote ethnic stories end up looking more like they're more like a have like almost a novelty attached to them oh yeah okay. definitely yeah i mean i think just last week m cantina made national headlines uh for their sixty dollar mm-hmm. taco. Yep. And oh I just like rolled my eyes so hard because that's it it just kind of his message, mm-hmm. Junior's message, like gets lost in in these like sensational headlines about, oh, you know, a taco shouldn't be that expensive. Um uh, and it 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 took away from the conversation about, well why not? Right. Yeah. Right. It's a Mexican guy who's yep. creating it. He he gets to have agency. He gets to decide what what direction to take the cuisine. Right. It doesn't have to fit into a perfect box. Does the that's an interesting uh, point though? But the other somebody else could say, well, that is a shrewd business move well, marketing because we've talked about totally also, part of that too. Yeah, yeah. you know like the uh, instagram is a big fat sparkly lie and the spectacle of things and like creating this uh this awareness out of it so whether he has you know agency or not what if he just does does like do the stories of the reporting help people understand that better then do you think or is that one of the goals of the story to kind of yeah yeah like for me, first of all, I would definitely like to go to the restaurant myself and try the $60 taco. <gasps> so, gasp. <laughs> I've got to right? I mean, you can write about it, you can, you know, list the fancy ingredients, but until you try it and say, actually, this is really amazing, or, you know, it could be quite the opposite. Like, oh, this is totally overdone. Right. This doesn't make sense in a, in a corn tortilla. Um, but, I I would definitely like to go try it, talk to the chef, you know, get into the reasoning behind, you know, why these truffles, why this wagyu beef, um, and and talk about why it works and 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 kind of dissect like did 
did this start a conversation that needed to be have? Um, and so, and you really can't do that until you've, you know, done your reporting. So th- this might be a loaded question, but do you think people write about restaurants without visiting them? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think she's right. Well, I mean, if you take a look at like, you know, here's the best 40 places yeah. in the state of Michigan, right. you can't expect the person who's writing that. That's not, but that's not a, uh, that's not the fault of the writer. That's the fault of the, the right. people creating the list. Yep. And not giving a someone a budget. Blame. Well, possibly. But if you're like, I need I need 40 places from around Michigan, do yeah. your research. They're not expecting you to go take a right. statewide trip. Okay. Right? right. If they were, they'd pay for it. Well, I mean, Bad yeah. Luck had the $80 cocktail originally that was, uh, you know. There but you I think they talked about that even before it was open. Uh, yeah, potentially. Yeah. Potentially that was true. I don't know if that that was you know not a part of a larger conversation, but right. uh, maybe it could have been about you know I think there's definitely similarities because part of the uh, after the initial uh, <clears throat> maybe criticisms or whatever mm-hmm. there is a there was a different conversation about it. people have already been paying these this much for vintage spirits it's on trend people are looking Wine. to spend uh, you know when you go to New York sure. you, I mean I I had a big debate about that because it, when I first read that I got mad. Well, the sugar, I mean, when we did the Prohibition Detroit menu a few mm-hmm. years back, we had, you know, $120 pours of that right. old Overholt uh, pre-Prohibition sure. uh, rye that we had sourced to, in support of that whole menu idea, like the whole concept was this cohesive thing. And I mean, people were- or Pappy. I mean, Pappy is I would put this on, I mean, I mean- uh, I'm not compared, but I'm saying from a price yeah. standpoint- an eighty an eighty dollar sure. pour our is not twenty three. Our Pappy twenty three was yeah, is one hundred twenty. So for the same, so for me, putting that old Overholt on the menu was awesome because the value in spending one hundred twenty dollars right. on pre prohibition whiskey with a story that had been part of you know Andrew Mellon's uh, original personal stash. He was the Treasury Secretary at the time. Uh, you know, he had actually a, a financial stake in the old Overholt Distillery. Prior to prohibition, obviously with his political, um, you know, foresight, was able to, um, you know, get a bunch of this whiskey, and so it came up in auction. So for us to be able to offer that as part of a menu sure. with the cozy thing, I, I can't tell you how many people really appreciated, and it was actually really great whiskey. Um, the ability to essentially like step back in time and taste something, and so that's kind of where the value added was in that eighty dollar cocktail. It, you know, could spark that conversation as well about. Vintage spirits and how are people, younger people, or not necessarily just younger, but people spending their money on things that they're identifying with, uh, you know, something historical or something that uh, ties back to a previous time. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe that got a little lost as well. So it's, I can see that. So that makes sense. Yeah. I want to go down a rabbit hole real quick. Okay. Right. So we're talking about $120 shots. Yeah. Right. We're talking about $60 tacos. We're talking about food that you consume separately. One percent. One sitting would be no, $200. Well, right, but I'm saying like one percent of people could could even afford maybe a little more than that. This is like sure. opulent stuff. And then, then you consider like Instagram and having an iPhone and these types of like you go down this rabbit hole of like what is food gen- journalism mm. even mm-hmm. – where is it at when we're talking about these things that are so expensive that no one can afford and, and we're producing it on things that most people can't like what is food journalism at that point then? 
Like where are we how do how do we bring it back to like to, to everyone? Right, right. Well, I do think I definitely think that in the case of M Cantina, that is more of a headline grabbing, um point proving menu item. Uh I'll definitely be saving my freelancer dollars to be able to afford to go there and actually enjoy a meal. Um it you know, at least for that menu item. But um and I and I wanna mm-hmm. I wanna add to this because you wrote a list about the uh the top ten meals you had on a on an EBT budget, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So and and so you you like publicly said like that I'm a freelancer. I'm I'm oh, yeah. I, I have an EBT card. Like this is what I'm doing and here's yeah. where I'm at. Yeah. So can we kind of like bring the two together, like this opulence with this like yeah, I mean it's it it is complicated. I mean, um I wrote that piece. I mean, it's no secret that every food critic in the country at the end of the year puts together um a list of the top meals that they eat, you know, for that year. I put one together a year prior when I was the editor at um at the Metro Times. Um but any freelance journalist, any food writer, and and a lot of food writers are women. A lot of food critics are men. That, interesting. That yeah, that is interesting. So and and the pay disparity is is enormous. I mean, if you're a staff food critic at a major newspaper, you're gonna get an expense account or at least have like the wages or income to compensate mm-hmm, to for that. Yeah. Um food writers, freelance food writers, um, you know, majority women who are, you know, writing recipes mm-hmm. or doing some of the more cultural food writing kind of stuff. Where, you know, we do not get paid well. Um and so it a lot of times it's feast or famine. It's like, you know, someone's I'm nonstop and working all the time and money is rolling in. And other times, you know, a client might end a contract abruptly or or what have you. And then you're just kind of hustling, trying to figure things out. And so that's where that came into play. Um, Yeah, I applied for an EBT card for the first time in my adult life. And I'm not ashamed to say it. Um, I worked my ass off and, you know, but I, I wanted to spell out that reality and I wanted I did want for my readers to know, like, I'm not in this for the Instagram fame and, and glory. And, you know, I'm not out there spending, you know, loads of money on $60 tacos. Like, that's not my reality on a daily basis. When we're talking about Detroit, that's not the reality for a lot of mm-hmm. people. And so I think you do need to be careful, like, in terms of, like, how you cover a story like that. like. I think I would have to look really hard, like you said, about the value of that product. You know, is there, where did you source it? Did the ingredients come from fair trade? Um, are you paying your staff a living wage? Like what goes into those ingredients in reality? Um, and those are those are good questions to ask. Um, is it something I'll be able to do all the time? No, hell no. But um, I'd like to, you know, get into that. You know, from time to time. Now, so another question is something that came up a lot for me with uh, I was doing some work for Channel 7 a couple of years back and, and they would say, OK, contact the restaurant ahead of time. Let them know you're coming in. 
and you know, essentially, like in no uncertain terms, like see if see if they can get you can get. I was the just about cover. to bring this up. Yeah yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you could call Junior and say, sure. you know, I want to do a story on you. Um, yeah. Can I try the taco? And more than likely, he'll probably say, yeah, I'd love to let you try. You know, but then at that point, mm-hmm. yep. the story has to be positive. Mm-hmm. You can't you can't then say, oh, this taco. This taco is a piece of shit, mm-hmm. right? Because at that point, he's given you something he's worked really hard on, even if it wasn't maybe in your mind, you know, it's like, oh, you just put a bunch of expensive ingredients together. It's the way I felt. I had the $60 burger at Rugby Grill. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, it's good, I guess. But she's right. not, I think, what you're saying, but you're not a food critic in necessarily in this role. But if you were taking that taco and exploring, I mean, obviously you're tasting it, but you're rather exploring. It's sixty dollars, but what if sixty dollars tacos were sustainable and it provided all of these things, fair trade, sure. sustainable wages, that would be an improvement, right? From like two dollar tacos. I don't think that's the point. No, with maybe sixty dollar taco. Yeah, and so my point is being like your journalistic integrity. Right. And right. so that that's where I was gonna go with that. And I also wanna jump onto your statement because there's a place in Detroit called Food Exchange. Yeah. Uh, they have a burger called the Big Baby. Yeah, yeah. And, and so the Big Baby is I'm going to probably get this wrong, but I think it's a half it's a pound of ground beef and a half a pound of corned beef. Whoa. And six slices of cheese and on Tuesdays it's like 9 bucks. Yeah. Okay. And, and I didn't hear bacon in that description. No, no, so it's corned beef. <laughs> oh, okay. But still. But so for, from like a like a affordability standpoint and the Is that a loss leader at $9? I well, it's not. A, I, I doubt it. I mean, I think he's always trying to do it. Like, if if for the community that that for the community, right? And anybody who goes to that place, mm-hmm. you could literally feed six people with off of that burger for sure. ten bucks, right? I mean, I, I know it's probably made for someone to eat themselves. Like, I, I get, I get the whole it's probably like, food more like challenge. a dare. Yeah, 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 it is. But if you, if you, it's like the ginormous out, food uh, that we talked yeah. about, right. right? But, but the, but, but the big baby. There's no place to sit down and eat. You take it, you, you take it home. So, like, whatever you do with it once you leave, you, you could. And so, a sixty dollars taco that is very much an individual experience versus the big baby that could be. But could also feed a family, mm-hmm. and, and like the the discrepancy in cost there too. Mm-hmm. The, the like food is such an interesting, uh, interesting thing because like at M Cantina, as, as you keep talking about, like you have the four dollar taco and you have the sixty dollar taco, so you could go in there and have a check for leave there for fifteen bucks mm-hmm. easy. Yeah, but you could also leave if you get you have to order three of those tacos. It's one hundred eighty dollars. I mean, I think part of the conversation. <clears throat> that we're not talking about is we could go to, I don't know, gray ghost. We could go to apparatus room. We could go to any number of these other, like quote unquote, established fine dining restaurants and pay, you know, upwards of $60 per entree and, and not bad or not, not even think about it. But why do we think about that when we're talking about Mexican food? So Why, why don't we? Right. Yeah. No, right. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, we yep. see the same. I mean, a little bit of the same thing with the Peterborough Chinese food is the same. Sure. I feel exactly. like, uh, like why is it's why is ethnic people, food, yeah. quote unquote, ethnic food? Why is it always cheap? Why is it always low brow? If it's set in a nice, mm-hmm. you know, well decorated, you know, space and, you know, you get that level of service that you might expect at, you know, these trendy places. 
why is that seen as bougie or you know or where does the uptight coin fit in that? or like or you're losing your authenticity if you're not like cheap and you know in a in a gas station or you know a hole in the wall i think part of it is detroit so when you go to bigger markets and i think detroit's growing is you have this you have a bigger population to experiment more and be able to say hey i'm gonna make a white tablecloth mexican place and there are people that are willing to support you to do that i feel like and again i'm going on a limb here maybe there's not enough people yet to do that in detroit like the detroit metro area you know i grew up in southern california um and so we're starting to see a lot of restaurants that are opening in the L.A. area, Orange County area, that are open by first or second generation mm-hmm. Mexican-Americans who are creating like this relevatory dining experience. Um, Taco Maria that a friend of mine, Gustavo Ariano, is always talking about um, is one of those examples. He uses uh, – the chef uses like – heirloom corn, you know, that that's non-GMO and, you know, that, you know, it just tastes like worlds away from like your typical store-bought like tortillas. Um, those places are getting recognition, but they still get a lot of backlash. So um, because it's like seen even, even within the Mexican community, like, oh, you're selling out. Oh, this isn't for the people. You know, who is this for? You're trying to cater to like white people. So I think I think the backlash or the resistance is everywhere. I think, you know, obviously, if you're looking at Southern California market, yeah, it's it's going to be a few steps uh, at least uh, ahead of Detroit. Um, I do think it's really encouraging to see that happening here, though. No, And I think it has changed because even looking at like being on the radar for like James Beard now. Um, you know, maybe someday we'll have a Michelin star, but I feel like, you know, it's, it's us continuing to grow. And as we grow, those opportunities are going to come. But I feel like even, even like from a white tablecloth perspective, there's very few. I mean, you bring up like apparatus from, which is not even white tablecloth, maybe prime and proper. I mean, they, yeah, I would say apparatus from when, once they started doing the chef's table in the back, uh, it's interesting though. That's an interesting point that you made about how somebody in, LA or whatever could do uh, sort of an elevated uh, concept and then be viewed as potentially a sellout. Um, and it makes me wonder. So if, if somebody was to go to Mexico, for example, certainly the perception is of Mexico is a developing economy. There's the money there is, it's not an advanced first world economy um, by definition. What like in Mexico itself, going back to this idea of authenticity. And if we, if somebody wasn't selling out, like in Mexico, what would that experience look like? I mean, are they so they're not using heirloom corn, you know, in Mexico? Like, what what would even the sixty dollar taco in Mexico look like? Is it even a thing? Like, there's what is elevated fine dining in Mexico look like? I mean, I think if you go to Mexico City, you'll definitely yeah. find that scene. And okay. and some of the best, um, at least there's at least one restaurant that I can think of that's like one of the very best in the world. And it's in Mexico City. Um, and so I think, I mean, I, I think. And that's traditionally, that, that the concept is traditional Mexican food? I Well, I would say it's, you know, elevated. Um, okay. I, I think it's, I think the idea, part of the idea is taking ingredients that 
are very traditional to the country and applying French technique or applying yeah. like fine dining technique. Haute cuisine. Interesting. Right. Yeah, I'm asking because I have no clue. It's just sure. I feel like if somebody in Detroit is making a $60 taco to make a statement, then I, I, it makes me wonder like, well, what actually is going on there? Right. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like American food. Yeah. You know, like what is American food? It's like mac and cheese and like hamburgers and stuff. <laughs> and like how do you make like a five star like American food? Yeah. So it yeah, it's bringing in that French. It's bringing in that, you know, that elevated thing. Um, I think any of the regional cuisines anywhere, even Europe or anywhere, it's going to be like basic put on the table food meatloafs, things like that. Sure. So that but, struggle of how you elevate it. Uh, there's so another place in Mexico was in Tulum last year, and there was oh, a place right. called Heartwood um, that was recommended. I And so it was, it's funny. I had recommendations to go and I had recommendations to avoid. And for the, the same re- restaurant. Yes. And mm-hmm. the reasons to avoid was that I would have to wait in line for a couple hours to get in there and that it was just going to be very, simple kind of it was two, it's two american guys cooking in tulum right i don't know if it's two, if it's a guy and a girl or a, a two guys but but what regardless of that um this so i made the decisions i'm not not going to try that i'm not don't i'm not going to worry about it not a big you don't like that. waiting for anything i don't it's true um and and so there's that part of it um and then this whole idea of this point you make about like selling out right and this pushback from the community with with where you're working from, so be it Mexican, Vietnamese, Lebanese, whatever, um, there especially around here, it feels like if you go to Madison Heights, for example, like all the Vietnamese places are all working within the same price points. There's no one who's outside of like you know uh, twelve bucks for a bowl of pho that could feed you for a week and a half. Right. Like right. there's that much food for twelve dollars. It's not even something. So why is there that pushback? Why why is the community if someone wants to say, you know what, I can I can take this bowl of pho and make it and charge thirty dollars for it and make it something really incredible. I'm not even talking about Takoy here, like because I feel yeah. like they're doing something like that in a in a, in a different level, right? Because Brad's a white boy, you know, and nothing mm-hmm. against Brad. He, he makes incredible food. But like from the in Madison Heights, could a fine dining Vietnamese place even survive? Would there be pushback? I I think that the business model that you're talking about, like you know the eight dollar buffet, mm-hmm. has worked for the forty fifty plus years since the Vietnamese community started um, establishing here. It's tried. It's true. It works. Why? Why mess with it? Like there, I think there's a a fear that if you charge too much, people are going to avoid it, or they're they're going to say, "Oh, well, this isn't authentic." I think I think there's this notion that to be authentic means you have to provide the food at the lowest price possible. Mm-hmm. Even and unfortunately, it it comes at a loss to the business owner. So. It, I think increasingly these days you're seeing people who are trying to break out of that and say, no, I want to, I want to hire people at a, a working wage. I want to source ingredients from a local farm, but you can't do that if you're charging next to nothing. And so 
you know, going back to M Cantina, you know, there's this idea of like, oh, well, Mexican food should be like super cheap. But what Junior has pointed out many times is that, you know, if you look at the technique, if you look at all the work that goes into making a lot of our stuff that's on the menu, you know, $60 taco, you know, leave that off the table. Like most of his recipes take a lot of work. And how do you how do you pay for that? You know, and so I think this kind of tries to address some of that. So there's one topic I want to bring up. We we kind of talked about it. I, I don't want to single out Brad or anyone, but uh, like cultural appropriation. Like where is the line of like someone can make a cuisine that's not their own or because I know you've talked about it a couple of times on social media. So I just kind of want to get your take on it. Oh, yeah. Too deep? Yeah. Too deep for yeah, like the no. last five minutes of the show? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've talked about it a few times. I think I think that people are free to make food that they want, mm-hmm. but they have to be respectful of the work that goes into making a cuisine. Mm-hmm. I think that you have to avoid this idea like I'm going to save this food or I'm going to take it to Discover another. Discover Vietnamese food. Right, yeah. right. Um, I think that a lot of places do food right. They do, you know, Alamir, you know, they do it right. There's a reason that they have a James Beard Award. Mm-hmm. Um. Don't come in and try to reinvent it, I guess is what I would say. Um, you know, hire hire people to work in that restaurant. Pay them a living wage. Pay, you know, use 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 their talents and pay them accordingly to to help inform your menu. Right. Um, I think I think just having respect and you know, I think there there's like a conversation that goes back and forth. Like, you know, is it appropriation or is it appreciation? Well, cause even when I asked the question about, uh, you know, Mexican high end elevated Mexican, the answer was, well, they're taking the traditional ingredients and using like French influences or French techniques. And that was the answer for American food as well. And I'm just, I'm only speaking from <clears throat> not really knowing. I'm ser- I'm curious, like, you know, so has everybody been appropriating French cuisine up to this point or that's the only reason or like, I'm if Brad like is, yeah. you know, like so if um, if somebody in Mexico is saying, well, I'm going to have this elevated concept and they've got to learn. Right. I mean, in order to be able to execute at that level, they've got to l- understand and learn French technique and probably train under somebody, probably travel there. Essentially what Brad did at Decoy, like I'm going to travel to this country and you know, soak up the culture, soak up the understanding or whatever, and then bring it back. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't know where the line is at either, but I, I'm wondering if there's a parallel there or. And then you extend it out to someone like, uh, like Rick Bayless, right. Who, who actively like responded to someone last year in this regard, because Rick Bayless has made his entire fortune off Mexican, off Mexican food, Mexican culture. Right. And um, I think if anyone, can respond to it from from that perspective. It's probably him, and I don't recall exactly what he said. But Toplobampo, Choco, um, Frontera, like all these places are re- like 
known nationwide as like, you know, very respectable Mexican restaurants. And Rick Bayless is, is not at all. I, I, from what I can tell from what I've read about him and, you know, uh, know about him like he's not trying to appropriate anything he's very much you know trying to embrace the culture right i think i think the difference comes when you're no longer collaborating or there's like an equal back and forth exchange that takes place where you're actively taking Mm. something that you don't understand. at the like yeah and that you that you don't understand or you don't have context and it's at the expense of other people um i think that's i think that's um the big difference mm-hmm. um there was a case a uh, year year and a half ago i guess more or less um where these two young women in portland they went to we did we talked about <laughs> that yeah they went to mexico like on a on a spring break or something and they saw these ladies making these tortillas and like they actively spied on, on the women making, you know, during the process um, when they wouldn't share their recipe. Like that's like actively going out of your way to, to steal steal, someone's livelihood, Mm -hmm. you know, theoretically. And so I think that's where you kind of draw the line. I guess there, I mean, and obviously the, as it played out, they shut shop down after that came out. But the argument was, well, they're not really stealing these women's livelihood because they're, they have a cart in Portland. It's not mutually exclusive. Like these women could do what they're doing. And I'm just playing devil's advocate cause I'm seriously curious, but you know, so those, those tortillas or whatever they were making from their cart in Portland only served to create, more economic activity in their environment while not impacting the other environment. I don't know. I think, I think that the fact that they can travel leisurely to another country and scoop up a bit of culture and then make some money off of it is where a lot of people had the problem. I think the stealing is key. Because you yeah. kind of bring up the stealing. It's almost like this is a technique they've honed, they've put together potentially for generations, mm-hmm. and they've made their money off of it. So for, for someone to come in without kind of maybe giving them the full credit that was due, is that where that kind of turned people off to it. They certainly right. did a really bad job of explaining sure. uh, what they were doing by saying that they were like peeking in the window and taking what yeah. didn't want to be. But in general, the idea, so let's, well, maybe it's Rick Bayless then. Like he's certainly created a lot of economic opportunity for people that I, that may not be mutually exclusive with, you know, people in Mexico or wherever, right? Like it's still growing the economic pie potentially. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can definitely see that. I think, okay. So like, I think going back to my experience as a, you know, my mother is Mexican American, like, her family dates back f- from Texas, like from before there was even a border, like the border crossed us technically. Um, and yet I don't speak Spanish fluently and I don't, you know, I'm not a great, you know, cook of like traditional Mexican food. 
And I can't afford to like, you know, drop everything and go spend a year in Mexico and study like the cuisine. And I think that's the difference between Rick Bayless and mm. someone like myself. Like he had that luxury. And so because he had that, he got to profit off of that. Whereas someone who might be of limited income doesn't have the luxury of deep diving into their own culture and and really like honing like these amazing recipes to be able to profit off of that. So Makes sense. Hmm. Okay, so let's bring it back to Tostada because we yeah. have hardly talked about that. Yeah, right? and, yeah. And so um, $20,000 like grant. Yeah. What what does 2018 look for, look like for Tostada Magazine? It's a lot of growth. I would ideally like to do maybe one story a week to start off with, um, you know, kind of grow that consistency. Um, and just, you know, now I have like the seed money to be able to really dive into the kinds of stories that um, that I'm passionate about. Um, as I said earlier, you know, I've covered immigration for years. I've covered, I've always like had this passion for writing about different cultures, uh, for exploring my own culture. This kind of gives me that opportunity to, to help hone other people's voices to, you know, bring others, other voices to light. Um, I think, I think in the media in general, let alone food media, um, it's obviously skewed, you know, older, white, male. And I think this is like a great time to disrupt that, to get away from that. I think more and more young journalists are realizing the potential of doing things on their own, finding grant money, starting their own podcast, getting, you know, sponsors to help them fund the kind of stories that they're really passionate about. And so what what are your feelings about we, we mentioned Instagram a little bit earlier. What are your feelings about these like large scale Instagram accounts that are kind of posting client photos that and they don't kind of don't say names. They don't they don't <laughs> say that these 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 posts are sponsored like they're they're calling themselves food bloggers, quote unquote. Well, but Mark, like, Mark Zuckerberg's latest uh, Facebook uh, thing might be a prelude to what will come eventually for that as well because well it's going to affect a lot of things the so, idea there oh, with the focusing more on family and friends and well i mean whatever the language that his uh pr department put together for him ultimately it comes to, to me comes down to economics not to drink but uh hijack your question but the economics of that is just the fact that there's only so much physical space in the, any timeline. There's only so much awareness, uh, you know, attention span that people can give. And uh, I mean, I can give you multiple examples of people that are, like you're saying, like profiting off of these platforms that were uh, created. And so why why would an influencer, why would a content publisher who's built a business model off of pumping out whatever um, – be able to profit so much when the platform is not profiting. So for them to step up finally and say like, Hey, you've had basically all this time to figure out how to use this. If you have done it successfully, you're going to be able to afford to right. pay the cost. And if you have, and if you haven't, then we essentially don't want you on this platform anyways. And I think that's the first shot over the bow to, I mean, again, to smaller like, guys. I mean, specifically you look at all of all four of us here are not giant accounts. And I feel like all four of us are going to suffer 
when it comes to mm, potentially, but uh, at the same time, but we're gonna have to pay. Know, we're gonna have to pay. But that more. was all. I mean, but if you look at, but if you can look at the longer term, like we are living in the information age, which is uh, kind of relative to the you know industrial age, very similar, and so we're living in it. So it seems like this change versus the algorithm change from a year ago. But like in the longer term, that was always going to be a thing, right? Like, I mean, attention is profitable and he's, you know, that platform has been developed and mm-hmm. uh, I think smart marketers have been paying attention for the last year have been making sure they're honed up on their strategies, understanding that like ultimately you are going to have to pay some money regardless because sure. uh you know, like it's the greatest sort of collection of attention that's been consolidated and handed to you on a platter with all the, you know, potential there. So it's up to them. So I don't know. I, I don't think it's a bad thing. Personally. And I, f- I feel like Sarita's project with Tostada magazine is he, like cuts into this as well. Like it, 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 this is like the smart way to go, like right. focusing more on these enclaves that haven't been focused on yeah and so now you have these stories of like you know places that like and all of a sudden like it's the 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 kind of enlightenment of people like oh i go i've been going there for years i've been telling all my friends about that place and like now i know the background right the tactics may change like she needs she may need to use a facebook group because they're you know highlighting that but like you know uh, there's always an answer and uh, i think that like uh for sure you just have to know that you're going to have to pay. You got to pay our Detroit. You got to pay whoever. You got to pay anybody that has a, a wide audience, right? You're going to have to pay Facebook. I think, I think too, though, like to your point about in, these Instagram influencers is like they, they have been able to really hone in on a lot of these like hidden gems. And, and, you know, I'm sure you guys can think of a few people who like love going to these like, you know, undiscovered, you know, whatever places. I don't want to say undiscovered. That's rude. But um, less popularized. Yeah. Like these off the beaten path places. But the problem is, is that I, I think the general audience, the readers, the viewers or what have you can see through like if it's a sponsored post. Mm, Authenticity. Yeah. Right. And so I think where we we lend authenticity is, you know, real storytelling, real reporting um, and and having the ability to to tell these stories in in a much more meaningful way. OK, so Serena, thanks for being with us. I, where can people find Tostada online? You can find it on our website at tostadamagazine.com. And you can also find us on Facebook. Um Tostada Magazine. Yeah, Tostada okay. Magazine. Uh, we're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We've got a ways to go in <laughs> developing those uh, those channels, but we're definitely there. So bookmark us, follow us, save us, and, you know, this is going to be a fun year. So follow our progress. Congratulations on your grant yeah. once again. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, Serena Daniel, thanks for being with us. Uh, until next time, 